This the third week of the Moot at St. Mary Aldermary Lent course, Vanessa Alston explores the theme of hunger and thirst. I guess in some ways what I wanted to share with you tonight was a reflection on how do we get to this place um, where we do become um, more receptive. Because I do think that very often God manifests or breaks into our consciousness in whatever way that is, as a result of something often happening in us before this moment, that there's been a stirring or an asking or a questioning or a searching that precedes that sort of um, sense of something coming to us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my glasses on so I can see better. That's better, I can see now. So, um, so we're in the third week of Lent, and I want to ask, what is the way we get ready to hear, to listen, to what the Spirit of God might be communicating to us? And that's a place of deep listening and attentiveness. And I want to look at the metaphor of the desert as the place we need to go in order to prepare. And the desert can be a very thirsty place. Um, one of my favorite psalms reflects the intense thirst a person can feel in the desert. And it's a thirst that David, who wrote this psalm, knew from experience from his own time in the desert. And of course, physical thirst and hunger can touch something deeper the spiritual hunger and thirst that dwells in the human heart and soul. This is the first bit of this Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And this is a human being who knows they're thirsty. But it's a hunger and thirst for more than words. It seems to be a hunger and a thirst for being itself. And this kind of hunger and thirst is blessed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So the route to blessing is not to try and sate our appetite in every conceivable way, but instead it's to become hungry and thirsty. Really hungry and really thirsty. Hungry for justice, truth and what really matters thirsty for the presence and reality of God in our lives. And this is what solitude and silence offer. 
By depriving ourselves of what we normally use to fill the gap, we instead choose to sit in the gap. We feel the absence, the longing. We allow ourselves to really get in touch with how hungry and thirsty we really are. And this is the preparation for being filled, for finding real food and drink. But we have to know that we actually are thirsty and that we have a real hunger. I'm going to ask you to indulge me. Um, I'm in danger of preaching this week. <laughs> so I thought I'd better preach to myself. So um, some of you may know, <laughs> but I love to read and study books. Okay, reading is something that's not hard for me to do. So this next bit is a word to myself. Okay, but you might be able to put something else in that fits with maybe another tendency that you have. Right, okay, so Vanessa. Reading theological and spiritual books, listening to talks and interesting podcasts, pondering interesting intellectual philosophical ideas won't change you. They can help to put a framework of understanding in place that removes perhaps some of the barriers and misconceptions you might hold about faith and religion, but they won't actually change you. They can help you to a deeper understanding about who Christ is and what his life and death and resurrection mean, but they won't change how you live. They can shed light on previously unknown aspects of the Christian tradition, but they won't change who you are. Vanessa, they can lead you to a place where you become more willing to change and when perhaps you're more open to the need but by themselves, your thoughts, ideas, and reading won't change you. Even your beliefs won't change you. It takes something much more fundamental to affect real change. And that's because the danger with thoughts and beliefs is that we can deceive ourselves, that we're something that we're not. And this is where religious hypocrisy happens we actually become less honest about the state we're in, rather than more honest. And this kind of hypocrisy, or sometimes deception, is at its worst, where in this dishonest state, we go on to lecture others about the state they're in. And Jesus' words about taking the log out of our own eye before trying to take the speck out of another's really hit home here. So one of the reasons I believe that I and other Christians in the West need to go into the desert and embrace the discipline of silence and solitude is so that we can first take the massive log out of our own eye. Because if we don't, we run the risk of our words never going beyond a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We're just adding to the noise. All of the ancient religious traditions don't just operate at the level of intellectual ideas. Conversion is never just a matter of the head. And this has been a big problem with Protestantism, which has echoed in many ways the deification of the rational in modernity, the emphasis on the word, the pulpit. And I have to say, I do believe in the ministry of the spoken word. 
But alongside this, we haven't, I don't think we've really understood the importance of ritual and symbolism and the importance of the body and the importance of relationship with others. Baptism and Eucharist are physical acts. They're equally significant in our transformation as spoken words. Protestantism was so focused on being theologically correct in rejecting a Catholic understanding of Eucharist. But the result in my experience is that for the most part we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We end up staying in the shallows of our being and in the shallows of spiritual experience. Deep no longer calls to deep. In terms of what really changes you, nothing will show you the truth about yourself more intensively than intentional community or any long-term committed relationship. But Protestantism often underplayed the centrality of what it means to become part of a body, the church, and learn to love and serve one another. And the same applies to spiritual disciplines. All the ancient wisdom of the church as regards actual practices so much of the emphasis and energy in Protestantism has been on being theologically correct. And I also believe in the importance of theology. But we've put so much focus into one small part that we're in danger of missing the whole. Justification by faith alone becomes right thinking alone and we get locked up into the head, rational thinking, rather than deeper mind. Whereas the truth has to grasp us at the core of our being. Beyond both reason, but also beyond emotions. You know, we can confuse the inner core of our being with our emotions. And, you know, I'm a child of lots of different things, but partly the evangelical Protestant church shaped me, but also the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s. I'm quite old. I caught it just at the beginning of the 80s. Also shaped me. But I would say that even that did not go the whole way to take us beyond emotion. And perhaps was in danger of actually carrying us from one high to the next. We got addicted to experience. But emotion won't take us all the way we need to go. It just becomes another form of consumerism rather than spiritual growth. Again, as Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruits. It's our lives that speak. So ideas and beliefs held in the head, even emotional experiences, can have very little impact on your actual life, being, and how you live. And this is where we're at, I believe. This is the state we're in. Um, this is part of the crisis of modern Christianity in the West. I think we've become atheist Christians because we say we believe, but we don't live as if God really exists and is present to us in Christ and through the gift of the Spirit, moment by moment. But the problem's even deeper because the crisis of existence is not just does God exist, but the crisis becomes a crisis of my existence. And this is what we touched on last week. Do I exist? And if so, how do I exist? And this is why Moot is a new monastic community, because we recognize that we need actual practices to change. We don't get there by thinking and feeling alone. We have to find embodied practices and disciplines that engage the whole of our being at a deeper level to become present to ourselves, to others, and to God. 
We need a daily discipline, a rhythm of love, service, and attention to others' good and ourselves. We run the risk of yet more fantasy and unreality. Rowan Williams gave a talk on the rule of St. Benedict, who was one of the major founders of monasticism in the West. And he described Benedict's rule as like a workshop to those who submit to it. And I'm just going to quote because no one can say it better than Rowan does. The product of the workshop is people who are really there. Perhaps it's as simple as that. What Benedict is interesting, interested in producing is people who have the skills to diagnose all inside them that prompts them to escape from themselves in the here and now. Just as much as in the literature of the desert, despite his insistence that he's working on a different and lower level, Benedict regards monastic life as a discipline for being where you are rather than taking refuge in the infinite smallness of your own fantasies. Hence he can speak in one of those images that continue to resonate across the centuries of the expansion of the heart, expansion of the heart that obedience to the rule will bring. This life is about realizing great matters in small space. For the modern, it's very hard to understand something like the desert hermits or the lives of the Celtic saints or even monasticism in general. It becomes this kind of weird world that has no relevance to us in the 21st century. The vows of chastity, celibacy and obedience just don't fit. And some of the actual spiritual practices or disciplines, why on earth go to such lengths? For us, it's incomprehensible, a kind of lunacy, a level of asceticism that can seem masochistic or even deranged. And it is interesting that the key thinkers of the Enlightenment really poured scorn on this kind of religious lifestyle. Um, I'm just going to quote you David Hume, who was a key thinker, um, what he thought about the kind of monastics or the, the idea of a hermit. There is perhaps no phase in the moral history of mankind of a deeper or more painful interest than this ascetic epidemic, a hideous, distorted, and emaciated maniac, without knowledge, without patriotism, without natural affection, spending his life in a long routine of useless and atrocious self-torture and quailing before the ghastly phantoms of his delirious brain, had become the ideal of nations which had known the writings of Plato and Cicero and the lives of Socrates and Cato. Quite damning. And I just want to say that there can be some, a wrong and distorted attitude to the body in ascetic practice. And we might want to question some of what went on in the desert and monasteries. But we also have to accept that we have come a long way from what motivated them to the point where we don't understand it, because we've lost within ourselves the inner hunger and thirst that motivated them. We seem to have lost a capacity for the spiritual life. To quote Jesus, we in the modern world might have gained the whole world, but we have lost our soul. So, what is your soul? I think actually we do need a lot of wisdom in this area. Um, 
there's a book I think it's very interesting um, by a, a man called Jacob Needleman called Lost Christianity. He wrote it back in 1980, but it, it's all about the loss of this understanding of the soul as that which connects, similar to what other people have said, it's what connects the body to the spirit and the spirit to the body. It's almost an intermediary part of us. But I also think it's important that we don't just think of the soul perhaps as a kind of immaterial thing because I do think that the platonic idea of the soul has actually deeply distorted our understanding of salvation and the life hereafter. You know, there's been an understanding in Christianity that perhaps, you know, after death we become disembodied souls floating around on clouds like the angels. But actually, um, Christianity has a much bolder and more material proposition, which is the resurrection. And it involves the physical as well as spiritual, where heaven comes to earth. But more of that at Easter. Our reflection at Lent here is the loss of a crucial understanding of what the soul is. And that perhaps we don't all have a soul ready, made up and running, ready to go. And that if we have lost touch with our soul, maybe we've lost touch with that capacity for real attention or deeper listening. Because I think there's a real danger that if there is no soul, then what is there to really address? Who can God address if we've lost our soul? And I'm going to quote from this book at this point. So Needleman says that the power and function of the soul is attention. The principal power of the soul, which defines its real nature, is a gathered attention that is directed simultaneously toward the spirit and the body. This is attention of the heart. And the mediating attention of the heart is spontaneously activated in humanity in the state of profound self-questioning. And I think what he means by that is where the deep questions arise within us, almost out of the depths of us, that we need to hold on to that tension. And sometimes that sense of contradiction, sometimes our soul speaks to us through almost, I think it can feel like pain or physical longing. Back to that psalm. But the problem is, is that our whole consumerist culture can be seen as one big attempt to get us away from this part of ourselves. We're continually led away from that which we really need to attend to. And on one level, this is what temptation is because it's that which takes us away from what we really need to be attending to, what is most important. We become scattered, dispersed, harassed and distracted. And we also think that the way is always to try and somehow meet that need at a superficial level, rather than actually listen to the need and perhaps the deeper things that underlie it. So to attend to the question within is to attend to the deeper existential longing of our being.
is to begin to gather ourselves at the centre of our being, to call ourselves back to the fundamental search at the core of our existence. And we need the discipline of solitude and silence to contain the energy of the question and the search within ourselves, not just let it disappear and be dissipated. It's so we can do what Jesus instructed us to do, to search, to ask, to knock, to get really hungry and thirsty, to awaken to the state we're really in. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net. Mm-hmm.